Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads, Season 3. Uh, quick announcement before this. Um, if you didn't see on my Twitter feed, I am changing the season. It's no longer going to be The Lost Continent of Moo. I actually found something else that I'd like to read much sooner. We will continue that, but that's going to be Season 4. The rest of Season 3 will be Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty, Understanding the Lost Technology of the Ancient Megalith Builders by John Burke and Kaj Halberg. So, if you didn't get a chance to learn that until just now, my apologies. Go ahead and follow me at Twitter at age underscore prep. At Twitter, that's usually where I do my updates in between the publishing of the episodes of the podcast. I actually couldn't find this book on archive.org, but I do recommend finding a copy of it if you want to follow along. There are some really great images. It's a little expensive, I think, for a hard copy. Hopefully you can find one that's not too expensive. Um, I'm actually reading this off scribd.com, S-C-R-I-B-D.com, and they have the images there as well. So without any further ado, let's begin with the introduction. The mists hanging heavily over the rainforest canopies of Mesoamerica are the mists of time, for they serve as a nebulous shroud for peoples whom time forgot. Only the peaks of their greatest creations, towering limestone pyramids, pierce the shroud and whisper of life. At many other places around the world, huge earthen mounds or stone structures are silent sentinels from times, cultures, and knowledge long since gone. In Illinois, France, England, Bolivia, and Egypt, to mention but a few. Today, these structures beckon us to them. When were they built? Who built them? And why? Archaeologists have long since revealed when and who. The why, however, has often been guesswork. One of the hardest parts of investigating something built before writing was developed is trying to find evidence of how the people who built it actually used it. The literature of Stonehenge and hundreds of other ancient megalithic sites usually states that these structures were used for ceremonial purposes, probably of a spiritual nature. However, the ceremonial site label is simply an interpretation that has over time become enshrined as fact. Among academics working in the field, no one could think of any practical use for a Stonehenge or a pyramid. So, if they were devoid of practical purpose, they must have been used only for ceremony. This reasoning has become so ingrained in our view of prehistory that these structures are often referred to as sacred sites. We need to remember that we view these sites through the tinted lenses of our own culture, which divorces the spiritual from the practical. For example, consider the 20th century largest structures. Hydroelectric dams are probably the biggest structures humanity has built to date. And why did we build them? Even some who had no acquaintances with turbine-generated electricity could surmise that these structures are important to our society by the effort we put into them. We know very well why we are willing to invest huge amounts of money, labor, and time in erecting these dams. We made this very physical effect because the return was worth it, in very physical terms. From these dams, we gain electricity, the lifeblood of an industrial civilization. 
What if our pre-industrial ancestors also invested huge amounts of labor and time to erect enormous creations of stone and earth because it quite simply was worth it in physical terms? What if the pyramids, mounds, and hinges paid their builders back by producing fertility, the lifeblood of every agricultural civilization? In many cases, we have well-documented evidence that these structures were dedicated to fertility gods or contained symbols and tokens associated with fertility, but they may have actually worked as mechanisms for increasing crop yields. What if you knew that many of these monuments do in fact produce physical effects, even today? What if you knew they were built on ground where certain natural electromagnetic energies are concentrated and designed in such a way as to further concentrate these energies? Finally, what would you say if you knew that pyramids, hinges, and mounds were usually built only after a food crisis arose, and that the way they concentrated those energies had the end results of producing more food? Consider the following facts. Megalith buildings seem to have begun in each country only after there was a crisis of agricultural productivity and famine loomed. The builders of mounds, pyramids, and hinges were often fighting for survival when construction began, yet archaeological evidence shows they got wealthy soon after the buildings had been completed. Experiments by academics in Europe have shown that the slash-and-burn agricultural known to be employed when these megaliths and mounds were built will exhaust the soil in three years. Yet ancient European farmers somehow got satisfactory production for seven years or more in the same fields, without the yet-as-to-be-discovered help of fertilizer or crop rotation. Experts know that as it was done, but cannot explain how. Something similar was true for the Mayans in the Mesoamerica. Their agricultural fed millions of people in the Yucatan Peninsula, which today can barely support 100,000. Before the Inca, a little-known Andean culture seems to have tapped Earth's energies to produce a similar effect, growing bountiful crops in harsh in the harsh Altiplano where the farmers struggle to get by today. <laughs> in England, excavations at causeways enclosures and hinges show that emmer wheat had been carefully cleaned of all weed seeds before being brought to the site and placed in the causeways ditch. This was wheat as seed, not as food. Throughout Europe, for thousands of years, such enclosures were sited on ground above subterranean geological structures that generate natural electric ground current of the same kind we found linked to improved seed performance on mine pyramids in Guatemala. In North America, hundreds of mounds were built by tribes of the loose-knit group called the Mississippian culture. Most of these mound-building people vanished long before Europeans arrived. However, during the White Settlement Age, the Natchez tribe still used mounds and in 1730, a French Jesuit missionary wrote home to his superior to say that no net Natchez farmer would dream of planting his seed without first bringing to the top of the mound for certain blessings. Something similar was true for the Aztecs. In the original American mound building culture, the Olmec of Mexico, villages with mounds enjoys a higher standard of living than otherwise identical villages without mounds a few miles down the same river. Today, mine farmers still bring their seed to the top of certain pyramids in Guatemala. Our own experiments, which we invite you to copy, has shown that seed of ancient varieties, are, which are still produced today, if left for a time in the air at such ancient structures, often grow faster and more vigorously, while producing up to double or triple the amount of food. Corns, 
corn seeds placed by us at one of the oldest Mesoamerican pyramids grew dramatically better, particularly if placed there on days of high electrical energies. Seeds that were placed on North American Indian mounds showed dramatically improved growth, especially when lightning storms were nearby. 21st century seed treatments use contemporary versions of the same electrical energies present at the megaliths that the megaliths achieved at the same effects that were observed in seed place at those ancient sites. Faster growth, higher germination percentage, better stress tolerance, and higher yields. These results have been confirmed many times by universities and agricultural organizations. You need not take our word for these facts. You can confirm them for yourself today without so much as a trip overseas. These structures are so widespread in America that two-thirds of the population live within a few hours' drive of one. Anyone who wishes can confirm or refute our findings with the information provided in this volume. My research has taken Kaj and me on a journey to remote places and times. In the following chapters, we shall take you to such sites in both North and South America. We shall look at how these energies arise everywhere from natural forces, how they could have been detected by the ancient builders, or you, and how these energies affect seed in a way that increases food production. Then we shall travel back in time to Europe and beyond to see how generations of archaeologists have unearthed mountains of evidence that are entirely consistent with this new understanding of ancient technology. Take the journey with us, and you be the judge. John Burke, July 2005 Chapter 1 The Lost World Quote However, other Mayan areas, such as the well-studied cities of Copan and Tikal, show little archaeological evidence of terracing, irrigation, or raised or drained field systems. Instead, their inhabitants must have used archaeologically invisible means to increase food production. End quote. Jared Diamond, Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed, 2004. In the dark tropical night, the dense Guatemalan rainforests of Tikal loomed over us. Decayed vegetation emitted a distinct smell mixed with the fragrance from flowers and herbs. Insects called incessantly, and a coughing roar announced that a jaguar was on the prowl. Even at 3.30 in the morning, our clothing was drenched in sweat and stuck to our bodies. Headlamps on, instruments in hand, Jeff, Kaj, and I single filed through the undergrowth on the jungle trail. We had been walking uphill to top speed for 30 minutes behind Louise, our guide. To catch our breath, we sat down on a wall between the famous King's and Queen's Pyramids, Plate 1, brooding silently in, the moonlight, in a moonlight fog. Re-entering the pitch-dark rainforest, we climbed the winding trail, emerging into a small plateau known as El Mundo Perdido, the Lost World. At this moment, the readings of airborne electric charge, recorded by our electrostatic voltmeter, suddenly leapt way beyond anything we had ever measured before. With the deep-throated roars of howler monkeys surrounding us in the pre-dawn darkness, we watched with some alarm the already striking re readings growing even stronger as we approached the Lost World Pyramid, Plate 2, then rising again as we ascended its oversized steps. In a flash, we, re we realized that our hunch had been right. We'd come to Guatemala towards the end of the second millennium AD, searching for answers to questions dating back to the first millennial BC. Archaeologists have done a very good job of figuring out who built the Mayan pyramids, as well as when and how. The question that we had come to seek the answer to was why. 
We thought we knew. Now we were trying to find hard evidence, evidence that would stand up to scientific peer review. We were equipped with electromagnetic instruments that had served us so well at many other ancient sites around the world. From English henges and mounds to Native American mysterious rock chambers and the biggest earthen mounds in the world. The instruments we had applied to all these sites were similar to those used by the U.S. Geological Survey. Time and again at ancient, inst at ancient structures, the instruments had revealed unusual concentrations of geomagnetism, electrical ground currents, and electric charge in the air. A few other pioneers had noticed this before us, though never at so many different locales. A review of previous research along with site visits with our instruments began to show that ancient farming civilizations had repeatedly selected spots where natural electrical charges were strongest. There, they had invested mind-boggling amounts of labor to build those structures whose design further concentrated these natural energies. More years in research libraries surveying archaeological findings revealed a pattern. The megaliths of various forms were not built when you would expect it. If these pyramids, hinges, and mounds, etc. were purely symbolic monuments celebrating something, you would expect them to be built when a civilization was in, was in its prime and had its resources to spare. In fact, following the histories of these sites in chronological order generally showed the opposite to be true. Although it sounds suicidal, these labor-intensive behemoths repeatedly were built at a time when the available land had become exhausted through overuse and the days before fertilizer and crop rotation. With the food crisis at hand, a society would suddenly take up to 25% of its workforce and put them in a multi-year or even multi-decade project, building an enormous structure with no apparent practical value. You would expect that these societies to at least then continue their slides into poverty and hunger. Yet the opposite occurred again and again, far too often to be mere coincidence. Once these pyramids, mounds, or rock chambers were completed, the society would suddenly start to prosper. There is some missing factor regarding these ancient structures, something crucial that archaeologists are not aware of. There are good reasons to believe that this had to do with tapping the Earth's natural occurring electrical energy to produce more food, in a manner not that different from modern technology that does the same thing today. And then on the next page, there are the plates the images, and I'm not going to describe them or read their subtext, but this is one of the reasons why you should get a copy of the book so you can see the plates, the pictures, the images as we read along. I shall continue. High civilization first arose in the Americas in the most unlikely of settings. Veracruz province on Mexico's Gulf Coast is even today so inhospitable that its 20,000 square miles of mosquito-filled swamps contain few villages, fewer roads, and can test even the most in, inveterate traveler. Yet over 3,000 years ago, something remar remarkable happened here to a people about whom we know next to nothing, not even when they what they called themselves. In recent centuries, as Mexicans began to stumble upon mysterious ruins hidden deep inside uninhabited jungle, they simply began referring to them by the only other thing of value that was found there rubber trees. And so this long-vanished population became the Olmec. 
In a land of flat, featureless terrain, half again as large as Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts combined, lies the single oasis of the vertical, the lonely misshrouded volcanoes of the Tuxtla Mountains. Here, rocky ridges arc gracefully skyward, pulsing with invisible electrical force, a force the Olmec may have taken with them to the new lands. At another volcano, Piton de la Fornay, off Madagascar on the island of Reunion, French scientists have measured how rainwater running off through underground channels of volcanic rock will generate electrical charge and magnetic fields, usually concentrated at the highest points. Other geologists have captured such charge on instruments atop sacred Mexican volcanoes, such as Popoco Pital near Mexico City. At Popo, the electrical charges reach thousands of volts per meter. Did the ancient Olmec wish to export this effect from, from their homeland? After farming the Tuxtla slopes for centuries, they moved out into the surrounding swamplands and took with them enormous quantities of the local basalt volcanic lava that had been hardened under heat and pressure. One of the best examples is today a remote and uninhabited plateau named after a nearby village, San Lorenzo. After, trying, after a trying journey by mule through tropical flatlands full of biting insects, you come upon a 160-foot rise, ascending to a half-mile-long flat top where over 200 small mounds were built circa 1250 BC, centuries before the founding of Rome. Archaeologists had long assumed that these small this small plateau was part of the natural landscape. The famous excavator Michael Coe, however, found something very exciting when his team had cleared the summit of growth and began to dig in earnest. This flat piece of ground, standing 16 stories from above its surroundings, was not entirely natural after all. At least the top 25 to 30 feet were composed of earth carried up here basket by basket by its Olmec founders. A good portion of it was not just any kind of dirt, but layers of an unusual type of gravel mined from stream beds. It forms a distinctive, it forms a distinctively different color from the earth above it and below it, because the pebbles are stained with iron. This would make them highly electrically conductive, and most of the 200 small mounds on the top rested on a pile of the pebbles. These weren't the only large-scale artificial features. Steep-sided, knife-edged ridges were built to run out and down from the plateau, looking every bit like the volcanic basalt ridges back home and the Tuxtla volcanoes. In fact, there's a great deal of Tuxtla basalts in the San Lorenzo Plateau in such a manner that it may have acted as veins of electrical current pulsing within the hill, creating by water coursing through rock, much as on the volcanic slopes of the Olmec homeland. No fewer than 14 springs at the base of the hill are connected to 20-some man-made lakes atop the hill, lakes lined with water repellent Bentonite, a type of magnetic stone blocks. Sluice gates were built into the lakes that, when lifted, sent water rushing down through the hillside in a series of man-made drains, composed of hundreds of tons of tightly fitted quarried blocks of basalt that had been transported on rafts through 60 miles of swamp from the Tulsa Mountains. Herculean labor was expended in an extremely forbidden place. Why? One characteristic of rushing water that intrigues us 
it is its ability to generate electric charge. This effect can be dramatically illustrated with a simple device called a Kelvin water dropper. Start by placing an LED indicator light bulb, like the small green onlight on a computer, between two separating streamlets of water. The buildup of electrical charge generated by the water droplets will actually cause the indicator bulb to light up about every 20 seconds. Two special characteristics of the Tuxla basalt are of particular interest here. Because of its high content of magnetite and other metals, this, rocks is, this rock is fairly magnetic. Secondly, the high metal content makes it an efficient coordinate conductor, <laughs> an efficient cord conductor of electricity. Furthermore, the ability of any rock to conduct electricity is proportional to its water content. If a sluice gate at the main reservoir at the top of San Lorenzo Hill is open, the water would rush down the drains through the interior of the hill. Now the rocks of the drains had all of the above properties, making them electric, electric veins to carry the charge of the running water throughout the hill. The electric charge would concentrate its strongest effects on the mountains on the top just as ground charge accumulates at high points during a thunderstorm, and the knife-like edges would conduct more current up from the jungle floor below. What were they hoping to accomplish? Richer than their neighbors. In a pattern that we shall see repeated again and again over the continents and millennia, this awe-inspiring building effort allowed poverty and preceded riches. The Olmec were originally subsistence farmers, practicing, practicing slash-and-burn agriculture. When their numbers swelled beyond what their homeland could support, they fanned out into the surrounding lowlands. But solid ground was scarce in this region, where most acreage is underwater year-round and most of the rest is flooded during the rainy season. So they farmed what was left, the tops of the natural levees besides the riverbanks. These were narrow strips but fertile, their soil renewed by mud deposited on, in the floods, much as in the Nile River Valley, a world away in Egypt. Still, full-time farming has always led to the same problem, one-away population growth. The narrow levee soon grew crowded and pressure continually grew on the stability to feed more people on a fixed amount of land. Oof. The levee settlements developed into two basic patterns, sites with artificial earthen mounds and sites without such mounds. In science, William F. Rust and Robert J. Scherer describe a puzzle regarding these settlements. Villages with a mound always fared much better than virtually identical ones a few miles down the same river without a mound. Analysis of trash heaps and skeletons showed that mound villagers enjoyed a significantly higher standard of living. They ate more meat, for example, and otherwise lived healthier lives. They had much higher social status and were far wealthier, possessing many valuable items such as polyserpentine tablets and ornaments of jade. As the whole, the Olmec began to prosper in their new homeland and grew sophisticated indeed. Imported magnetite was polished to concave mirrors that could focus the sun rays like a reflective version of a magnifying glass starting fires. As they polished these stones, the Olmec must have noticed how doggedly the dust would cling as a result of magnetic attraction. In fact, a needle of this magnetite, magnetic ore, magnetite, was excavated by Michael Coe at San Lorenzo, complete with a groove for suspending it from a string, 
an arrangement that would allow it to act as a compass needle. <clears throat> because the magnetite ore was formed when the magnetic poles of the Earth pointed a slightly different direction, their needles point 8 degrees west of present-day true magnetic north. Many Olmec, intriguingly, many Olmec and Mayan structures are strictly aligned with an axis that points 8 degrees west of today's magnetic north. If in fact this is what it looks like, then the Olmec invented the compass a thousand years before the Chinese. <clears throat> no one can figure out how the Olmec paid for their many luxury objects. Nothing has been found that they were exporting in turn. Some speculate that perhaps they exported perishable handcrafts or the brightly colored feathers of birds, none of which would turn up in, modern, in a modern dig. We began to wonder if the wealth may have been based on something else perishable, food. Surplus agricultural production can always be easily exported in return for luxury goods, and it fails to show up in excavations. At San Lorenzo, over time, bigger and bigger blocks of basalt were brought in. Weighing up to 30 tons, they were floated up to 60 miles through swamps and dragged to the top of this partially artificial hill. Some of them were carved into hunt human heads 8 to 10 feet across. Others were carved into blocks, flattened on top, and decorated around the sides with fertility symbols, including the ubiquitous were-jaguar, half-man and half-cat where patterns on the top show that something were, was frequently placed on them, something heavy enough to have worn the hard basalt at the edge and center of the flat top surface. In western Guatemala, a similar basalt sculpture demonstrates a clear ability of the Olmec to determine the north and south poles of magnetic fields. If the whole body was depicted, the magnetic poles straddled the navel, and the seven large basalt heads there were detectable north poles located in the right temples of the heads. These were not inserts in the heads, rather these poles were present in the original rock. This positioning is obviously not by accident and suggests the carvers may have well used an Olmec lodestone compass to detect magnetic polarities in the basalt and then carve the sculpture accordingly. In chapter 9, we will see such ancient abilities on display again in English henges. <laughs> It is known that after completing the hill of San Lorenzo, the Olmec prospered. At La Venta, a hundred miles to the northeast, they later built an even more impressive seat of fertility images with basalt structures, including an imitation volcano. Unfortunately, La Venta today is situated atop the richest oil deposit in Mexico and is not open to the public. The ruins lie on an island in the middle of a volcanic lake that also sits precisely atop one of the largest gravity anomalies in Mexico, a correlation with another geophysical force that we discuss in later chapters. Further west, at Tres Zapatos, these impressive Olmec geoengineers leveled the top third of a mountain and erected on it a series of four-sided stone pyramids that were flat on top. This creation was at the peak of a long mountain ridge from which much of their magnets, magnetite was mined, and would therefore be littered with magnetic anomalies. End of an era. The Olmec disappeared into history after a sustained drought. Less rain fell, so the rivers flooded less frequently, depositing less fertilizer, alluvium, and leading inevitably to soil exhaustion. The people's response was dramatic. The huge carved basalt heads were ripped from their perches and buried, 
but not just anywhere. They were dragged out into the knife edges, ridges, at great risk, and interred there under thin layers of soil. Was this a desperate attempt to increase the conductivity of the ridges, drawing up natural telluric current, thereby reinforcing the charging effects of the drains? Heads and altars, all the extra available basalt, were also buried on the plateau top, but again, not just anywhere. They were placed only in east-west line directly above the chief underground underground drain. The faces of the heads were disfigured before burial, so it seems that any ceremonial aspects of these creations had been abandoned. Do these remains hint of a heroic yet ultimately futile effort to survive? We do know one thing that they did, shortly before vanishing into the mists of time. They conveyed some of their knowledge to a group of rainforest dwellers, whom we today call the Maya. At a spot loaded with geologically induced electric ground charge, the Olmec brought their influence to bear in the creation of their last pyramid and the Mayans first, the very special structure now known as the Lost World Pyramid. In Chapter 4, we shall return to look at the startling results of our tests there, results that show profound changes in agricultural growth produced by the energies harnessed in the Lost World Pyramid. But first, let us explore the nature of these natural energies and how ancient builders might have detected them and harnessed them in the first place. And that is the end of chapter one of the book we are reading this season. Um, and I am also reading this for the first time as usual. Uh, so <laughs> if you hear me come across new words, you probably recognized it when I was trying to uh, read read, uh, read through it because there were some words that I hadn't read before. And this is the first time that I'm reading the book, so please forgive me. Uh, this book, um, Seed of Knowledge and Stone of Plenty, Understanding the Lost Technology of the Ancient Megalith Builders by John Burke and Cash Halberg. I'm reading from scripted.com. Uh, please find a copy to look at the plates and images as we go through this chapter, sorry, all the chapters, but of season three. And uh, just ending here, we'll pick up with chapter two in the next edition. But it's interesting to hear the how food grows in a more electrically charged surrounding. Um, very interesting to know very good knowledge to have especially if you're interested in growing your own food because who doesn't want to do that be totally independent and have amazing crops and nutrition I wish you well thank you all for listening um, and we will see you next time